I have with me somebody today that a friend of mine uh, told me I needed to talk to. So I looked her up and I realized that I already knew who she was. I have uh, read, she's a prolific uh, writer. I've read uh, lots of her articles and uh, and I, I already knew about her. So I knew that you needed to meet her. Dr. Medina Baumgart, welcome to the show. Hi, right, thanks so much for having me. So uh, you wear a lot of hats. You really, you're a, yes. uh, you know, you're you're a, a PhD. You are a prolific writer. You're um, you're really an advocate for um, first responder mental health, and uh, and you're just uh, you're you're. In fact, we'll talk about this. You're you're actually kind of embedded with a police department, which I think mm-hmm. is just such a fantastic idea. So um, start out by just. Telling people about you and your career. Sure, absolutely. So I'm a licensed psychologist in California and board certified in police and public safety psychology. Um, I currently work full time as a department doc in-house doing uh, counseling, critical incident debriefings, uh, crisis and critical incident rollouts, uh, and doing some training and consultation. Um, And then on the side outside of work, Uh, I work uh, with other agencies and police officers, um, really training them and teaching them about a variety of issues, writing articles uh, on a bunch of issues related to law enforcement and first responder mental health. Um, And because I'm married to a now retired police officer, uh, I got invested in the topic of just understanding retirement and easing the adjustment for our police officers. You know, that's such a critical issue. And I am... uh... I'm a retired police officer. I'm also the wife of a retired police officer. So that is a very different um, aspect of a mental health because as as you know, you probably hear this every day when you're at work. Cops, we all run around and go, oh, I can't wait until I retire. I can't wait until I retire. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then retirement, when you actually uh, do what we call pull the pin, um, and you're retired, you kind of get hit in the head with a hammer. Yes. Like, what do I do now? Talk about that. Yes, absolutely. So that's uh, my husband and I and our relationship got hit with the hammer. <laughs> um, you know, he retired. And um, for the first couple of months, it was like vacation, right? Oh, this is great. Um, he still had to wake up to an alarm clock because I'm still working. Um, but he, he did really well for a couple of months. And I think it just started settling in, you know, this, um, oh, so this is what retirement is. Okay. And I mean, he was kind of a classic cop all in on the job. Um, and so I think as things kind of settled in, it was a big struggle trying to figure out who he was now that he was no longer a cop. And for me, I recognize too, you know, as a spouse, I I got used to running my own program because he's working all the time. He's getting called out. Uh, So I just kind of learned to do what I do to get through the week. And with him now being retired, um, it kind of blew up my routine as well. And it it was a strange experience for me because as a psychologist, I have the knowledge, the training, the experience. I help people get ready for retirement, take care of their mental health. Uh, But when I found it to be impacting my husband and us personally, it was like all of that just went out the door and I felt helpless and powerless and I didn't know what to do. 
Um, and so it took him a couple of years to kind of start coming out of that. And at that point, I, I handed him a notepad and I said, here, I want you to write down everything that you'd want your partners to know, that you'd want other cops to know. Um, and he did that. And that was kind of the basis and foundation for me learning more about it and then bringing that info to other cops nearing retirement, their spouses, especially. You know, it's not just the law enforcement profession. I think uh, really in almost any profession, when people mm -hmm. get to that age and you're thinking about retirement, um, very often the idea of retirement is a lot more fun than that actual retirement, no matter your profession, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. You know, our profession is, um, you know, we're so grateful for people like you because these are topics that really weren't touched on um, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly when I started, you know, not just planning for retirement, but just even worrying about our mental health or our feelings. When I went to the police academy, you know, we were, we were told, don't talk about it at home, no matter what you mm -hmm. see, don't talk about it. Uh, you know, try not to think about it and uh, let it go and get up and, you know, go and see the next, you know, day of horrors the mm -hmm. next day. That's changed yeah. so much in the last couple of generations of police officers, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think, too, I mean, a big credit to police officers themselves, the retirees who are actually having the courage to speak up and just talk about it. Um, and that's right, one of the things. We didn't. Exactly. And that's one of the things that was helpful for me as a spouse for my husband is seeking to understand it, talking with other retirees and spouses and realizing, OK, we're not the only ones, you know. So you do a lot of writing on uh, on the brain, which is something that fascinates me mm -hmm. um, personally, because if if we could, you know, and the brain's hard to study because you got to mm -hmm. have an alive person to yes, be able yes. to study it. It's it's not like some of the other uh, uh, medical things that we study. Um, but you are very well versed in, uh, you know, brain function, change in the brains, uh, in the brain and um, trauma, brain trauma. Can you explain to people what EMDR is and and similar therapies for uh, trauma victims for first responders for what you know not only what that is but how it works and how it helps. Yes, absolutely. So um, the body and brain themselves, you know, as human beings, we're pretty resilient, and so anytime we get an injury, whether it's a physical injury, um, a mental health injury, uh, we essentially have to give our body and brain the best opportunity to heal themselves. And it's kind of eliminating a lot of the obstacles. And for police officers and first responders, especially, that can be a difficult process to just kind of stay out of the way, right? It's And, and all of the tools and the training, suck it up, avoid it. Um, all of these things uh, kind of get in the way. And so with trauma, as the brain and body are trying to heal, from this injury, um, that process can get stuck sometimes. Um, and, and it's not always clear what happens and why it gets stuck, but nonetheless, it gets stuck. Now with EMDR, it utilizes eye movements and other forms of stimulation to essentially help the brain reprocess the incident, clean out all of the stuff that's no longer helpful, and kind of 
reinstall some information that helps put that traumatic event or that traumatic memory to rest. And so the way I explain it to folks is you can think about when you re-experience a traumatic event, like you're going to the movie theater and it is in color, it is high definition, it's surround sound. Not only do you see it, but you may smell it, you may feel it, your body may re-experience it. And with EMDR, it helps bring it from that movie that's very alive down to the photo album, just a snapshot. So you remember the event, you can remember how you feel about it because that's very normal, but all of those other details go away. And so that, it's- that, that is a perfect explanation. And, an and do you find tool. it, you find it a very effective tool for first responders, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and to be quite honest, um, going through the training myself, uh, I always lean on the side of being skeptical. And anytime I'm going to ask my officers to go through something, I want to go through it myself. So I knew the research on it was very supportive that this works. I brought my own trauma into that and experience for myself. Holy cow, something I've been holding on to a number of years now I don't I don't have it anymore. It's it's not the same. This is great. And so it, introducing it to my officers, um, I explain it and I share that. And I said, look, you know, it can be a very scary thing to have to confront something that you've been avoiding for a really long time and doing your best. And so I explained that if you're working really hard to avoid thinking about these things, you're actually putting in a ton of work. And it's not very comfortable. And going through EMDR, same deal. It's a ton of work, not very comfortable, but there's an end in sight. We know that if we go through this, at the end of this, you're going to feel so much better. And working with folks towards the end of their careers, nearing retirement into retirement, being able to help them resolve all of these things that have compounded throughout their career and to see them feeling human again and able to interact with their environment again. Um, it's, it's amazing. I'm a huge fan of EMDR. That's fantastic. And, and you're right there with your, with your officers to be able to provide not just a, you know, a therapy like EMDR, but uh, all kinds of different things, including mm -hmm. critical incident uh, debriefings and things like that, which is so powerful again to go back to just a couple of decades ago when an officer or a team of officers would experience a, a critical incident again we very often just got up the next day and went back to work and mm -hmm. did our did our thing walk us through what it's like um for you as the clinician when a, a team of your officers is involved in a, in a critical incident mm -hmm. what do you where do you come in um, so it depends on the incident. So um, I sometimes respond in the immediate aftermath, typically with one of our peer supporters or our law enforcement chaplains. And at that point in the field, right after something like that, people's brains are still processing. So it's really about monitoring, providing them with their basic needs. Do you have to make a phone call? Do you need me to talk to anybody? Can I get you some water? Let's get you some food. Um, and then it's also helping their partners because sometimes they see their other partners 
struggling or or dealing with the immediate aftermath of they, they themselves feeling very helpless. And so it's being present. It's kind of walking folks through if their brains need to understand what to expect, um, giving them information to help their brain and body recover after the event as best as possible, what to do, things to avoid. Um, and that's really the goal in the immediate aftermath. And then usually roughly three to five days later, having them in my office and walking through the critical incident debriefing. And we explain to them, this is not a therapy session. This is not a fitness for duty evaluation, meaning that my job isn't to determine if you're good to go back. It is really an opportunity to walk through the incident, walk through different reactions. I provide education that helps nor normalize a lot of these experiences and help them understand why these things are happening and reinforce the natural resilience and coping ability that they have. Um, and, and reassuring them, not every critical incident is going to result in a post-traumatic stress injury. And you actually have a big role to play in how your brain and body recover. And here's the things that you need to do. Um, after a serious traumatic event, it can feel very chaotic and out of control, especially with everything that pops up. And being able to provide some education to help them make sense of why things are happening um, tends to have a tremendous impact because they no longer, you know, the brain for cops, it's worst case scenario all the time, you know, and so it's normal because that skill has been reinforced. It's normal that when your body and your brain are now doing things that do not feel normal, that their brain goes to worst case scenario. And just really normalizing that experience uh, and then giving them the tools um, and also occasionally bringing in a spouse to help them understand. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's so great to be a part of that, you know, immediate aftermath all the way through and then following up, you know, a few weeks, months, anniversary dates, just to kind of check in and see how they're doing. You know, what do you recommend in the immediate aftermath of a trauma for a police spouse? And again, I'm guessing you've experienced this, you mm -hmm. know, not as doctor, but also, but as a police spouse as well. Like, what do you, what do you, what's the first thing you tell police families when their officer has been involved in a critical incident? I normalize their experience um, and how they feel. And so a lot of it tends to be the helpless powerlessness you know, we know our spouses, so they don't have to say anything. And we know that something's going on. Um, and even for a lot of officers, too, I'll tell them as a spouse, I don't need to know the nitty gritty details. I just need to know where are you hurting and how can I help? And if that means just sitting next to you, not saying a thing, but just being there so you're not going through it alone, I'll do that for you. If you want to talk about it, I'll listen. Um, with spouses, I will tell them, you know, it's important to get the body moving after something like that, because the body needs to essentially process out and work through the adrenaline dump and the cortisol and all of that stuff. So even just joining your partner on a walk, hey, let's go for a walk. Hey, let's go, go to the gym. Let's go swimming. Um, but doing something together as a family unit is so important. Um, things like, making sure that they have water to drink so their body's flushing out everything, um, avoiding alcohol, paying attention to what you're eating, 
right? So a lot of sugars and, and crappy foods, you know, might be what the body craves, but it's really not the best thing for the body in the aftermath. Um, you, mean and alcohol, just, you mean beer, donuts, and coffee are not a good thing for us after yeah. trauma? Yeah, that's, that's going to make me not a fan to anybody listening. <laughs> exactly. Well, and see, and that's what that's what's so great about I wish every police department in this country, you know, had someone like you, uh, you know, truly in, embedded with your people because Doc, for the last three years, especially the American law enforcement officer in general has just been so first of all, stressed out from the pandemic, right? You know, cops were out there working um, when everybody else was hiding in their mm -hmm. living room and sitting on the couch, not really understanding what COVID was all about. Cops yeah. are cops are still out being cops. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of them didn't even have, you know, protective equipment, things like that. We didn't really know, you know, at that time what we were dealing with. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, then we had the death of George Floyd and then the riots and the vilification, the demonization of our entire profession, you know, not just one police department, not just one police officer. Um, you know, what have you seen in the last three years that is that, you know, that is different than what you saw, from, you know, in 2019 and before that? I think historically, uh, the profession's gone through ups and downs, but they generally settle back. And what's been so unique is all of this, exactly what you said, everything, and it's just unrelenting and it's not stopping and there's staffing shortages and they're having to work an insane amount of overtime. And so what you're seeing is not only the cumulative impact of sleep deprivation, of shift work, um, but you're also seeing the impact that it's having on their families and their relationships. Because when you have to work that much, you don't have time to see your family. You don't have time to stay connected. And so that tends to be a significant struggle. And a lot of our folks are losing their relationships because of it. And there's not a gosh darn thing they can do about it because they have to work. And so that kind of lends itself to almost this just defeated, like I just, I have no control over this. I don't know when it's going to end. Um, seeing more depression, anxiety. What do you do to help them focus on any positives that are happening? So I will generally say, um, you know, what's one good thing or two good things that happened to you today? And they don't have to be super fuzzy, fantastic things if everything's crappy right now. But what are a couple of things? And at the end of their day or their shift, I tell them to focus on those, even if the only thing you're focusing on is I made it home today. You know, I woke up today on the on the right side of the dirt, you know, um, your family. All of these things and focus on those focus on the last time you felt really happy or really relaxed and comfortable. Think about that stuff. And then teaching them how to strategically shift their body and their brain from one mode to the other. You know, it's, it's, it's on the job, your brain and body are wired to protect you. And the job doesn't really teach you how to shift out of that. Um, 
And so, you know, when you're physically exhausted, when you're mentally exhausted, how do you then shift gears? And so providing them with some of those techniques so that they then almost regain a little bit of control that despite all of these obstacles, they're able to have some control over how their brain is doing, over how their bodies are doing. Um, teaching them, you know, different techniques to help them stay connected with family members, even though they're physically not home. Um, you know, my husband and I, we, we joke about this now, but we say the reason we've been together so long is because for half of our relationship, we were essentially not seeing each other. <laughs> and so, you know, we- That's we essential live- to a lot of police marriages. Yes. Like- <laughs> attest to that and um you know things like post-its we started making games where we'd hide post-its to see you know where they could find it and try to make it as embarrassing as possible you know (laughs) just different things like that that maybe a lot of people don't think about but they help you maintain that connection despite all of that Um, and then offering to talk to their spouses offering to bring that aspect in so that way on that end they have that support that they need but it's definitely challenging right now. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons the National Police Association exists is to is to support those officers and their families that are going through such difficult times. I, I tell you, I wish we had about another three hours to talk. Um, but quickly, tell people uh, where they can uh, find you if they want to connect. Sure, absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Instagram at Dr. underscore Baumgart. And then on my website, www.drbaumgart.com. People can contact me directly through there. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.